Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Kabe. Joining me today is a very special guest. He is a very dear old friend of mine. His name is Dr. Wei Lu Wei. Can I call you Wei? Yes, that that's what I go by in general. I've known you for how how long now? Oh, internship. That seems like a very long time ago. You've been Whereas, on the show before. Do you remember? Yeah, that was it was like number three or something way back. Yeah, I, I, I think at that point, it was just the only people that were listening were the people that were on and then our family. Yeah, I don't even know if it was that. <laughs> but had no idea. I mean, not that we know what we're doing now. By the way, I haven't even introduced what the show is. We're like a medical podcast, humor adjacent medical topics. Sometimes we talk about medicine, sometimes we don't. Usually we have some sort of medical theme. Uh, but we were really bad getting back to my original point way back when, and you were on one of our very first episodes. It was very kind of you to offer your time to us. And now you're back. Now you're back. Now you're here. Now that we're, yes. Well, yeah, I think, I think think what it was, was like, I was, I was taking some pictures for you guys Mm -hmm. for you. And, um, and, and then you were like, why don't you, why don't you jump on? And I think I was, I may have been post call. And so I, I had that like post call brain fog and I was like, yeah, why not? Do you know what's great about you? I'm being totally honest. Something I've, I've thought about this a number of times is how great you are with little sleep. You, oh, no, no, <laughs> no, I, no, no, no. I, I'm I mean, no good. Not, not that I'm trying to justify the abusive system in place that, you know, work hours restrictions, but you and I were like the f- last year 
that before there was an 80 hour work week, like when we first came into to internship together, and that's where we met, we were the last class to be like, oh, next year, we're going to go this 80 hour work week thing. Um, so we had pretty awful hours. And, but I remember specifically that we would go out, we would go out like to the city, we drive up to the city, and we would go out for a long night. And then we would come back after a long night of partying. And I would drop you off at the hospital. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I do remember some of those days where it was literally just... we would drive back with a big group of people and I'd drop you off at the hospital and I would go home and sleep for like, you know, hours. And I would just wake up being like, oh man, Wade's been working all day. <laughs> I feel so I guilty. probably, you know, like that, that whole year was like a blur to me. I probably just like went in and kind of slept under the table until it was time to like, uh, admit a patient or something like that you worked hard and i know you did it was very impressive i know i was there i saw it so can you give a little bit of our our history together yeah so we we met in internship and uh, one of the most distinct memories i've had um, throughout my life was uh, the first time meeting cave we were standing at the the nurses station and um he was having a conversation with a with a much cooler intern and, about hanging out. There was no and, cool interns. And, no, this about? guy was cool. I don't know if you. I don't remember his name, but he was definitely cool. Uh, um, and then and 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 they talked about hanging out, and they were like, "Oh, uh, I live in Campbell. Oh yeah, I, I live nearby." And then I chimed in. I was like, "I live in Campbell too." And then I think you both like turned around and just continued a conversation. <laughs> I don't think that happened. Well, I, I will give you credit. You did talk to me later, but uh, it was mostly to mess with me um, during <laughs> during the uh, call nights where you would call as a as a as a nurse and pretend to be a nurse and and, and describe some kind of emergent situation like imminent fecal impaction needed. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry for that. I I um I used to do that. I used to. I would when I was trying to like get sign out or I had to talk to another intern or, or something like that, I would call and pretend to be like a really lost, bewildered like nurse or sometimes pretend to be some like doctor from an outside hospital trying to send a, a patient to them and just be insufferable just to see how far <laughs> people could take it. <laughs> you know, you learn a lot about people that way because you would oh, come yeah, across sure. these these interns that would just be so gracious and kind and patient. And then you would come across these other ones that were just miserable and angry and were so upset. And just, it, it was, um, it was a good sort of litmus test for people, but um, yeah, I'm sorry I did that to you, buddy. No, it was good. I, I it, it, it made internship all that more memorable and tolerable. We became friends pretty quick and, and have been to, you know, to this day. In fact, you introduced me to my wife, that's right. Um, and not only that, uh, you know, people I officiated say, your wedding. I officiated your yeah, wedding. You officiated my wedding and you convinced her not to dump me when we were first uh, starting to date. <laughs> you know, I, I know I've told you this before, but it's true. It wasn't that I had to convince her not to dump you. It was that I had to convince her to give you a couple of listens, just like with any great song. You don't appreciate all the intricacies of the song right away some songs are pop songs you hear them right away and they sound good and you're attracted to it and you want to hear it but then it grows old really quick you're like one of those songs where it requires 
multiple listenings. You have to like get into it the 30th time. You're like, oh, I didn't even notice that there was a trumpet there. My God, these, the levels of it, the depth of it, and all these little idiosyncrasies of the song that you just come out to over time. I'm like, I just need her to put this album on a couple times, this Way album. Because if she does, she's going to love it the way everyone else does. She had been listening to like a lot of like top 40 and I like put on like Miles Davis. <laughs> and I was like, here, here's a deep cut. <laughs> but hey, it worked, right? And everyone I've always introduced you to loves you uh, and likes you more than me. And it's annoying as shit. And we play music together. Oh, yes. That's, that's one of the highlights of... Um... You know, the things that we do or I do outside of medicine, um, you know, as as people who have gone through a lot of medical training, you know, it's it's hard to find time to do hobbies. And, you know, I, that's one of the few things that I, I really value. Yeah. Yeah. You're really good at it, too. Thanks. So we, we have internship. We have uh, music. We've had uh, marriages. Our kids hang out sometimes. Yeah, in fact, um, you guys were over this weekend uh, to our community pool. Uh, and the kids had a great time. Uh, listeners probably don't know this, but Kave is a is a very strong guy. I'm a large I'm a large mammal, and I have momentum. It's not strength; it's momentum. It's different. Well, uh, I, I will just say that he, you know, from my vantage point, it was like he was a human water ride. Uh, <laughs> The kids were having a blast. Um, you know, uh, we had just gotten back from like this epic trip where my kids, I took my kids to Great Wolf Lodge and then we went to Hawaii. Uh, and then right after this, after that, um, we had Kavi come over. And when I just asked after exposing yourself as much as you could <laughs> yeah. to COVID, you're like, come yes, on. I, just, over. I was like, all right, you need some of this. And then when I, when I, after all of this, when I asked them what they liked, best about the last few weeks they specifically said uncle cave flipping us in the swimming pool and uh, at first i was like oh man that's great but then like i all of a sudden there was this sinking feeling about all the money i could have saved <laughs> not going on those trips and just having you over and like you know for for a, for a first generation immigrant chinese guy you know there there are two things that that's like the worst news that i could hear is Number one, you got an A minus. And number two is you just missed out on saving a ton of money. <laughs> oh, I, one other thing we haven't even talked about yet. I haven't talked about the fact that you're a radiologist. Can you tell people, I mean, a lot of our listeners know already what a radiologist is, but can you explain um, what a radiologist is maybe to someone who doesn't have the same background and your specific uh, specialty in radiology? Um, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, many of the listeners, I'm sure at some point in your life, you you may have gotten a, an x-ray, um, and for some people, a CT scan or an MR, we're, we're the doctors behind the scene reading those studies, and you get the report, and, and, and that's us interpreting those studies. Um, as medicine, medical imaging becomes more advanced, um, you know, we're able to see more and more things and diagnose more and more things, and so... Um, you know, we were fairly busy, but um, you know, I, I was kind of drawn to this aspect of medicine because, again, as an Asian guy, I'm kind of drawn to technology. <laughs> and <laughs> what, let me ask you this. What, uh, let me see. I will tell I'm also, you. Uh, what's that? 
I will tell you if I if if this is the sense I get as well. What do you think the stereotypes are for a radiologist? I, well, I don't necessarily think it's a stereotype. I think it's like all these guys who sort of are guys and gals. Well, actually, it it has been disproportionately guys yeah. for a very long time. Right. Uh, and I think what it is is like these guys who kind of like are like, oh, I'm just going to do what everybody else is doing and, you know, take the classes. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm a, I guess I'm applying to med school. And, and, <laughs> and like they're, you know, they're generally smart people and they and and they get into med school and they're like, oh, I really don't like talking to patients. <laughs> I, I it makes me fairly uncomfortable. Uh, like, what what area can I be in where I I can kind of avoid that? And you're good with people, man. You're well. I I think that that the the radiology field has drastically evolved. I mean, now with the advent of like IR and uh, breast imaging, it's you know it, it's actually very patient interaction intensive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so for me, uh, yeah. you know, at first that's that was kind of my thinking, and then I you know. I, I kind of felt like, oh, you know, really, I actually kind of miss uh, a lot of the, the patient interaction. Like I spent all this time, you know, developing, uh, you know, my my sense of how to how to talk to patients and how to comfort people. Yeah. Like, you know, like I didn't want to just throw it out the window. And so for me, when I was doing the radiology residency, um, I was drawn to the, the breast imaging aspect of it. Um, the other thing was my you know, near that time, my aunt had been going through breast cancer treatment. And I kind of saw how, how much of an impact that the, the breast imaging radiologist had on, 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 on the diagnosis and the management. In a positive way or? In a positive way. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and then I had wonderful mentors at UCLA um, that, you know, they, they were very generous with their time and, um and I saw how the patients looked at them. Uh, it was kind of like the same way you look at, you know, your, your regular doctors. It wasn't just like, oh, you're just some special specialist in the basement that I, I will never see again. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot more sense now that you put it that way as to why you picked that particular specialty, the breast imaging specialty, because it is really like you have to have a lot more patient interaction than you're just in a room reading x-rays and CT scans that come to you over the computer. I mean, not that that stuff isn't important. That stuff oh, is yeah. vitally important. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I think for, for some of us who kind of want to have a little bit more of that patient, inter go back to having some of that patient interaction, I think breast imaging is a, is a happy medium. The, the other thing too is that um, you'll probably appreciate this as a, as a gamer. Uh, I played a lot of video games growing up as mm -hmm. well. And so um, breast imaging actually, a lot of the procedures involved with um the breast is, is breast imaging based and so like biopsies and stuff like that you say you're a gamer but i've known you since internship i have never once seen you play a video game why, why is that when did you give up on video games i you know i i think i don't remember what game it was it may have been like legend of zelda or like some some game right. where i i think i spent probably one to two or three days like <laughs> trying to beat it and i and i and and I eventually did and then like at the end of it i was just like what did i accomplish like i was just like and, and like it was like it wasn't even just 
like you know i played it intermittently it was just like all the time 24 7 yeah like and it was like day it was like the sun was coming up yeah and, it just and, it broke you yeah i was just like oh man that i think this is the definition of addiction yeah there's one other thing i was gonna uh i want to share with you before we go to our guest i i don't know if i got to tell you the story yet but i went to a wedding recently and you'll appreciate this because i think you're like me in the sense we're we're both musicians. I mean, we're not at the caliber of like a lot of the the guests we've had on the show. We've never achieved things that like you know Sharky has, but we played pretty good shows pretty regularly, um, and we played a lot of the the best venues in San Francisco at least, and Sacramento probably. And um, and and I think despite all that, people will never look at you and me as musicians. They're never gonna look at us as musicians. We don't look oh, the yeah. part. So um, this is, I had an experience at this wedding and this is not an uncommon experience where I'm sitting there and there's this dude at the wedding and he's like wearing jeans because he's like the cool guy at the wedding that wears jeans, like kind of looking down on us because we're doctors and he thinks we're like not really all that cool. It's really, he makes that pretty obvious. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm in a band. He has this whole story in his mind where he's like teaching me about like the cool underbelly of rock and roll. Yeah. And he, and in the back of his mind, he's like, this guy's eating it up. And, and he's probably going to tell like somebody after the wedding about how much this guy Kave was eaten out of his hands. Oh my God. This guy wishes he was a cool rock and roller like me. And I don't know how to like say it to those people where I'm like, oh man, I, I know you're a poser. Stop. It's okay. I'm a poser too, but at least like I <laughs> yeah. know it and I played better venues, more of them, you know, and, and that's okay. Cause the venue, cause we still sucked. <laughs> you know, like, I could say that like we sucked, we were nobodies and we went nowhere, but we were still probably better than you. So you don't need to tell me because even though I look like a lame doctor, I still probably know better than you do. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, well, you know, people, it, it's like people who need to dress the part, right? Yeah. Like, you know, there's like even at a wedding. I mean, just come on, man. You're, right. you're at a wedding. Just dress like a normal person yeah. at a wedding. Like you don't need like I it's like wearing scrubs everywhere. You know, that's what it's like. It's like, uh, as like, as, as like uh, you know, like a first year medical student, right? Like, yeah. uh, is gonna show up at a wedding in scrubs. You know, oh, yeah. all you wedding oh, people just, know, have no idea what it's I like. just came from the OR. Oh, man, is this my stethoscope I have around my neck? Oh, man, how embarrassing. <laughs> I use this at work where I work in the hospital as a doctor. It's the worst. Well, uh, speaking of doctors and smart ones at that. Uh, we have Dr. Jeremy Faust coming up next. He is a public health expert and ER doctor. He's coming to us from Harvard, your old stomping grounds where you went to medical school way. Oh yeah. That, uh, I think specifically he's at, at the Brigham. That's, uh, that's, I have a lot of great memories from that place. It's probably, I mean, uh, to think back, it's probably where I, I met some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Um, it's like, you know, I would say it's kind of like a hospital full of Spocks. Like they always know everything and they always do the right thing. It's like, it's all evidence-based. I mean, if there was a hospital on Vulcan. No Captain Kirk's. No Captain yeah, Kirk's. Yeah, no, no, no rash decisions to like go down to the planet alone or something like that. I mean, all these guys. No red shirts. Um, also, after the interview, make sure you stick around and listen to an essay by Dr. Chuma Obinemi. Uh, if you have an essay, please let us know. If you have some piece of art, some music, some poetry, something you want to share with us on the show and you want us to share with the uh, audience and listeners here uh, in our world, please let us know. 
Thank you to Nadim for help with production. If you haven't already, follow us at iTunes at the House of Pod. Please leave a review for us at iTunes as well. That really helps us uh, and helps get new listeners to our program. Stay tuned. And welcome back today. We have one of my personal favorites, Dr. Jeremy Faust. He is an emergency room doctor, health policy, public health expert. His writing has appeared pretty much everywhere. People put words onto paper, New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Scientific American, Slate. If you're into research, he does that too. His publications have, have occurred in the JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, and the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, and tons of other ones. He is now writing for Facebook's new subscription newsletter bulletin. It's called Inside Medicine. It is excellent. And I highly recommend everybody subscribe to that. Dr. Faust, thank you so much for coming on today. It's great to be here. Listeners don't know, but we just spent like the last 30 minutes trying to get the sound right for this episode. And no matter what we do, I'm sure it's still going to suck. But, you know, that's that's what you get when you put doctors in charge of a podcast. That's what's going to happen. It is so nice to have you. I really appreciate you coming on. How are you feeling, buddy? Feeling pretty good. Um, Low-key angry, but also feel like mission-focused. There's stuff to do, and that's always the uh, the reason to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, yeah. I, I think if you're not a little bit angry now, you're not paying attention. And um, so actually, l- let me get right into this, because a-, a lot of my anger now is about how the Delta variant is being used to feed into an anti-vaccine narrative now. You know, we've warned about variations. We've warned about mutations. We've warned about all this happening, particularly if there's a large reservoir of unvaccinated people in the world. And now when it's happening, there's people out there who are like, see, what, what can you do? The, the, va- the, the vaccine isn't, isn't working against Delta. So what's the point? So can we just address a little bit of that? Can you help me talk to those people and, and tell them why that's incorrect? Let's break some Delta variant misconceptions here. Sure. The, to me, the way I read the data is that Delta makes vaccination more important, even though the vaccine itself works just a touch uh, less well as it did before. So it, because Delta is going to move more quickly, which means more people will be hospitalized sooner, which means we risk that whole issue of overflow. So if you're not vaccinated, you are more likely to encounter a healthcare system when you do get COVID, because it's coming for you, that is overwhelmed. And it's also possible, we're still learning, that Delta might actually be a little bit worse of a variant in terms of just the number of hospitalizations per infection it causes, right? So we don't, we don't really know that. There's some, some signal of that. And yes, there's, there's breakthrough hospitalizations that we were not seeing with the previous variants. But for the most part, the, the infections are mild. The vaccine's doing its job, which is keeping, uh, keeping you out of the hospital, keeping you from dying. But there are some breakthrough hospitalizations. But again, when I see that, I just think, well, if those folks hadn't been vaccinated, they'd be on ventilators, they'd be dead. So yeah, right now, Delta is making it uh, so that people have less time to make the right call. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more important than ever to get the vaccine with the Delta variant, right? Um, so when you encounter these um, people who are sort of anti-vaxxers, um, do you feel that as a medical community, we, we need to try new approaches because 
uh, some people say, oh, we need to take off the kid gloves, but other people say, oh, it's, it's a, we need to take on a more nuanced approach. I think that the place to be more hardcore is on things like vaccine mandates for healthcare workers. We should be advocating whole, like full, wholeheartedly, like full throttle for vaccine mandates for anyone who has a chance to infect anyone else in their line of work. So that's hospitals. I think that it's ridiculous that some airlines are not going to make their own uh, like pilots and flight attendants vaccinate, whereas others like United are doing that. So I think that as a public health perspective, we can now say, look, we know the vaccine not only protects you individually, but also really decreases your likelihood of getting infected and therefore spreading it. Even if the breakthrough spread is now happening with Delta to some extent, it's still you're still less likely to get infected. That's it's, it's still a lot less. So the idea that we can communicate this disease even though we're vaccinated. Um, yeah, but that's not compared to the people who are vaccinated. So that's where the rubber meets the road. Like I, I can't tell someone over here not that they have to get vaccinated for a disease or that it's not contagious, but if they can spread it to someone else, that to me is where we have the, the, the duty to, to really advocate for that and be hardcore about it. So I'm like, my hospital just announced the vaccine mandate and I'm not shy, like good. That's yeah. good. That's really right. good. When it comes to like the, the general public, the sort of vaccine hesitant issue, you know, this whole idea, there's some degree of like, you know, do we dunk on these people for being, you know, not with it or for believing stuff they read on some whole of the internet, as opposed to like actual experts who care about this stuff. Yes. I mean, dunking is fun, but I don't think that changes a lot of minds. The, the data really show that the things that change minds um, more than anything else is uh, proximity. So people who know people who've been vaccinated, the people who are the wait and see crowd, that's actually worked. They wait, they waited and they saw that their neighbors got it. They didn't get sick. They didn't uh, have a, they didn't, you know, have infertility. They didn't, uh, you know, grow a second head. They're not 5G mm -hmm. magnetized and they're good. And oh, by the way, they're not getting sick. And so they saw that and then they said, okay, well, it's sort of, they let, they let their neighbors be the, sh like the sort of like the front, the, the first front, like, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. A, a charging Normandy beach. Absolutely not exactly very courageous, but, <laughs> but, but I will tell you that at least they are in the next line and, and they're going up and, and they're going and doing it. So that's been a big thing. I think that micro influencers are a big thing. I think that macro influencers have already done a lot of work. I think that when we saw uh, a lot of distrust in the black community, I think key messengers made a huge impact there. Um, I think that uh, that's not going to work as well in certain political places where like um, rural white Republican voters who don't like to be told what to do, even by people that they voted for, that's yeah. just not in their sort of uh, philosophical makeup. So when people criticize Donald Trump for not getting vaccinated on public in public and making a big thing, yeah, I mean, it would be nice if he had done that, but I don't necessarily think that that would have meant that all of his followers went and did it. They will just say, oh, that's Donald Trump just doing what he knows he has to do for the cameras. Like it was probably a fake, you know, and right. he's just being a shill. Yeah. The same way like QAnon would be like, yeah, there's pictures of Trump hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein, but that's because he was going deep undercover to expose him. I mean, they'll find some way to make right. that weird narrative work. No, I hear what you're saying there. Yeah. Um, so I, I you, you brought up the, the vaccine mandates, and I, I, I want to talk about that a little bit. I talked about United having it, your hospital thankfully having it. So uh, is let me just throw you this. Uh, are vaccine mandates data driven? Yes, I wrote about this in Inside Medicine, insidemedicine.bolton.com, free to subscribe. Did you like that um, softball I threw you? I just threw it right at you. you. I was like, here you go, you. knock this one out of the fucking park, bro. Thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah, they are data-driven because, uh, especially for people who, like I said before, who work in situations where 
their clientele doesn't have really much of a choice. So if, if they come to the hospital with their heart attack, they don't, they came to get better, not worse. And if they're exposed to a bunch of people who aren't vaccinated and they get coronavirus, like that's really terrible. So it actually mattered that we knew that the vaccines prevented forward spread and not just protecting the people who got it. Because if in fact, it, all it did was to protect me from getting it, but uh, getting, getting really, really sick, but I could still spread it, you know, the vaccine wouldn't really prevent me from spreading it, right? It wouldn't have any impact on that. So we kind of waited for that information and we now have that. A year ago, when we first started this, there were a bunch of papers that said, look, hospitals are not really places where the disease is spreading any worse than the community. The hospital reflects the community. And I think that reflects a couple of things. One, I think the PPE regimens at that time were just crazy. I mean, the difference, I mean, like, look, April of last year, it was like a whole procedure just to go see a patient, right? And over time, I'm sorry, we, we, we do what we're supposed to do, but there's just a little bit of, you lose yeah. your momentum. You can't do it every yeah. time and you can't. So, so I think there's some degree of that. And there's some degree of it's a Delta is much worse. It's just hard each through PPE. And I, I, I'm going to wear my PPE, but it's just not going to be perfect. Um, so there's that piece too. Um, and yeah, I mean, so I think once you have that, then you have to say, look, there's a responsibility to protect our patients. Yeah. I have to say, I was a little bit nervous about vaccine mandates in the beginning, uh, just because of our history, our nation's history with vaccines when they first, we're talking way, way back in the day, how they first started. And there was a lot of valid criticisms about early vaccines. But now we're at a very different place with vaccines, how they work, how safe they are. We're at a very different place with this current uh, pandemic. And Every day, vaccine mandates seem better and better to me. And I just, uh, I actually, I feel like it's a good selling point. It's a great selling point for, for a company. Like if there's a restaurant and they say, hey, you, you have to have a vaccine to come in here. You have to have something that proves that you had it. I'm much more likely to go there. If there's a club or something like that or some music event, um, that's the only way you're going to get me in at this point. I feel like United, for example, that's probably going to win over a good portion of people just because of that. Like, like, why not do it? Like, why would a company not do it? Is it just because they're afraid of a, a backlash from the from the, the those that thirty percent of Republicans that just are never going to do it? Well, there's also backlash against from unions. This is actually a place where the politics are really surprising. In California, the a lot of the unions are fighting a, a mandate even though I would say most of the people in those unions would like to get the vaccine. There's like this weird thing of no one tells me what to do. I'm a union person. They can't tell me what I have to do. So there's a little bit of, it's coming from both sides on that one. And I think it's unfortunate. Like let's, let's, uh, let's be honest, like just because like California is mandating a vaccine for like a, a teacher's union, for example, or whatever else, that doesn't mean that like, tomorrow California is going to like be union busting. I just, I just don't think this, this is the time to have that turf battle. Uh, but yeah, I think that, that is absolutely right, Kaveh. But I think in addition, in general, I think carrots and sticks are really big. People really do respond to, if you if you get vaccinated, you could take off your mask. You know, that worked for a little while. That actually increased. Now, now you know, we can't do that with how much Delta there is around. Um, and then it's, okay, if you get vaccinated, you can come to this airplane or you can come to this event. You know, I'd love to see a situation where it's like, okay, if you're vaccinated and you'll submit to a rapid test, the same day, you can come to this indoor concert that we're going to have. Like, right. I actually think that that combination is really powerful and it'll motivate people to do the right thing. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I like the idea. You know, people should go out and post on their social media, 
on Facebook, like, oh, I had a great time at this event. Thanks, thankfully, because I was vaccinated, uh, you know, showing people that you, how much more you can get back to normalcy uh, if you're vaccinated. What do you think about the the data coming out of Lollapalooza, out of the 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 numbers of, of infection we're seeing coming out of Lollapalooza? Does it surprise you? I mean, look, Lollapalooza is interesting because it's largely an outdoor event. I think the outdoor events themselves aren't that bad. I think, um, the, it, look, I, I, I tweeted a picture of like this like mass of people. I was like, yeah, that looks a little scary. But honestly, it's not nearly the same. And the issue with things like Lollapalooza and Sturgis, the bike rally, is less the outdoor event itself and more the stuff around it. It's the indoor bathroom. It's the indoor dining that you got to do if you're out of town. It's the hotel lobby. Right. It's the hotel. And so the question is, if you have 90% of the population vaccinated, which they did, what was what was the outcome going to be? And honestly, like 200 and some odd infections out of hundreds of thousands of people, not bad, actually. It could be a lot worse. And yeah. are, are any of those in the hospital? Like probably not, or maybe a few. So I actually tend to think that... Um, it really matters, A, did they go to the hospital, how sick did they get, but also what's being done around it. So for example, anybody could go to Lollapalooza, you know, I would make it so you had to be vaccinated. But again, like if you're not wearing a mask, you can't come to this thing. Or to me, honestly, this is not something a lot of people talk about, but I really think that that combination I mentioned before of a vaccine and a same day negative test. Yeah. I actually don't even think you need, I don't even think you need a mask. I mean, I I wouldn't like necessarily advocate that without more data, but like I can't see a situation in which I'm vaccinated. I'm rapid antigen negative, which means I cannot be contagious. It means if I yeah. got infected yesterday, I'm not even contagious yet. Uh, yeah. So who cares if I go out? Uh, that, that to me, it's like you may you might not even need a mask. But I mean, yeah. at this point, indoors it makes sense. But um, yeah, I think. That, well, that's how we get out of this. That's how we get out of this with the the vaccines proving them and that testing. I think you're exactly right. I, that makes a lot of sense to me. So I, I was going to ask. Um, about specifically about the uh, opening of schools. Um, I read your article about uh, rapid testing um, and, and I thought it was great. Um, what do you think the, the, well, what is the rationale behind that and what, what do you think the barriers are? Okay, so my main goal here is to keep schools open for as long as possible. And my underlying assumption is that if there's a huge outbreak of coronavirus, it's gonna, the school's gonna close and you won't know when you can reopen. So I think one of the problems is the people who are like sort of against testing in schools, they have this idea that like, well, if there's a little bit of coronavirus in the school, no one would notice it because the kids won't be that sick and that life will go on. That's not what's going to happen. There's going to be outbreaks. They're going to be detectable. And then they're going to be like, what the heck's going on? we got to close. And so in my actually by my way of doing it would be to do a lot of rapid tests very frequently. And ironically, it would have two, two effects. You would actually find more cases, but you would actually um, find them sooner. And so you'd only have to close down like that classroom, test everyone in there. Uh, and then you can actually resume school sooner because you know when everyone has been uh, negative on the rapid test for a couple of days. And so you're going to have actually uh, sooner and shorter shutdowns of, the, of, of individual classrooms or schools. The other thing is you actually might have, you might actually have fewer uh, shutdowns in a way, because if you do a PCR based test, which is a genetic test, 
you could pick up a test that was positive on some kid who came back from vacation and he was contagious two weeks ago, but he still has a positive PCR test because those tests stay positive for a long time. And so you could shut down a classroom or school based on a false positive in a sense, because that guy is no longer contagious. Whereas when you just use the rapid antigen ones that, that are looking for contagion, then you only really are picking up people who are contagious and you actually might uh, close down less often, but all your closures will be necessary. That makes a lot of sense. And I think if we're able to get that messaging out there as the difference between the PCR testing and this rapid testing, I think that would, I think, ease a lot of parents' concerns. I think that would uh, go a long way. Um, along the same lines, it, when do you think, and I, this is a guessing game, I know, but when when do you think kids are going to, under 12, are going to get vaccinated? It's a question that I get a lot. I don't know. And I think it, it, it depends on a couple of things. It could be that the data has been slow coming in because actually for quite some time in the spring, we had relatively few cases. One of the things we had going for us last year was our absolutely inept response to coronavirus meant that we had out of control spread tons and tons of cases, which meant that when you randomized 30,000 patients to either get a placebo or a vaccine, yeah. it didn't take you very long to notice that right. the people with the vaccine were picking up infections because infection was every, the, the virus was everywhere. You know, today, if you and I were to test an Ebola vaccine and, and you know, Way was to be in the intervention group and I was to be in the control group, a year later, the, the researchers couldn't tell if the vaccine worked or not because neither of us were exposed to Ebola. So mm-hmm. whereas a year ago, if, if it was coronavirus, you know, we would know because it's everywhere. So that's, I think maybe the kid trials have been slow, slowed down a little bit by the fact that the vaccine worked so well in, in the winter and spring that we had mm-hmm. few cases. Now, of course, we're going to see a bunch. Um, I think the other thing is given the concern with side effects for kids and the myocarditis in particular being the big one, I think that they want to make sure that they um, have a little bit more safety data because they want to make sure that they're getting a good assessment. Like my, I've done, I've done the assessment of this. I've looked at this question. Um, the vaccine is far safer than, than not only COVID, but the COVID considering the risk of getting COVID right now. Like some people could say, well, if COVID goes away, why vaccinate the kids? Well, it's because it's not going away and it hasn't gone away. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like at this point with the Delta variant and with it being so contagious, it's, it's just a choice between either getting the vaccine or getting COVID. Yeah, and that's actually what I said in June in the in my Times piece before Delta really took over was like, look, people, this virus is not going anywhere. It's either COVID or the vaccine. So let's play that out. Let's say what happens when you have 73 million kids vaccinated and see how many hospitalizations we think that would cause. Uh, what will be the downsides of that? And let's see what happens when 73 million kids get the virus and how many hospitalizations and deaths that would cause. And then also how many uh, complications like the multi-system inflammatory uh, syndrome, that's known. I don't even, I didn't even include long COVID because that's too much of a, of, like a, of, a, of a black box to me. But yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's the comparison. That's what cracks me up about these people online that really focus so much about this possible, the small risk of myocarditis in these patients. I'm like, you're worried about that cardiac event? None of the other side effects of actual COVID? I mean, it's so funny how, um, how the numbers, uh, the risk of getting something from a vaccine can scare people so much more than the actual illness. I don't understand that. And, and meanwhile, you know, we didn't even do the whole thing of like, wait a minute, COVID can cause myocarditis because at the time when, when we did that work, we didn't really have a very, very good assessment of what the rates were because it's so hard to get a background rate. 
Like what was the rate of myocarditis in society in 2017 for kids or 18, 19? It's so hard to know that because it's just a matter of like who's measuring what and when. So I didn't buy it. I, 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 even though I thought I'd heard from my friends who are cardiothoracic surgeons that like they'd seen a bunch of kids with myocarditis after COVID and they were like, oh my God, this is real. I was like, yeah, but that's, it's like, I can't take that anecdote, right? Now you actually have seen papers where they do age match cohorts and say, look, we looked at kids who got COVID and we looked at kids who got the vaccine and we compared those rates of myocarditis and it's far, far worse in the COVID cases. And on top of it, it it's, it's not like myocarditis light. It's not like a troponin elevation and they go home the next day. Like a lot of these kids who get COVID related myocarditis are far, are far sicker. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Last, last topic for you. And then we'll uh, let you go. We know you have a lot of writing to do. Um, it's about boosters. So at the time of this recording, we just started talking about boosters for the immunocompromised. There's a lot to parse through for that. We don't have to go into that in too much detail because there's still a lot that is unclear about that. For example, me as a gastroenterologist and hepatologist, probably half of my patients could be considered immunocompromised because they're on some sort of medication, a biologic agent, or they're on steroids, or you could just maybe even consider cirrhosis to be in an immunocompromised state. So there's a lot of gray area in that. And I'm really curious to see how that plays out in the next couple of weeks. Um, so my, my first question though, would be, would be besides that immunocompromised group, uh, which we're still parsing through, when do you think boosters uh, will be available to to people who who are aren't immunocompromised. Like say for example, doctors like us, we got it all really early. We got it eight months ago, nine months ago. Like for for us, when do you think that would start to be the case? Well, I would say I don't want to give you a date, but I want to give you what I'm looking for that would trigger the need. And to me, it's a combination of not just proof that the titers or antibody levels have gone down. That doesn't really mean much to me. It's just, that's just a number. What I need to know is that that number correlates to a known increased risk of hospitalization, severe disease and death. Because, you know, if, if, if you're telling me that because my titers are lower 10 months later or eight months later, that means I'm going to have a breakthrough infection and I'm going to feel crappy for a few days. It's, that's, that's not great. And I don't want to sp spread it to anyone at that time. But that's a very different situation than you tell me that, you know, eight, 10 months later, I could get Delta or whatever else variant comes in and I'm going to be in the hospital or, you know, risk dying. And that really it's the efficacy of the vaccine for those things that really has been compromised. So when I, for me, when I see proof in adults in particular, that um, people with low titers are getting hospitalized then I think that's when you that's when you have to consider um, a boost. And I think that it's very important. My friend John Graff at, at UCSF, an immunologist, he, he had a really important point. I want to share it, which is that when we look at this question, you want to separate the science from the politics. So the science would say, OK, at what point do, we, do people need a vaccine if, you're, if your goal is to keep them out of the hospital or from dying? That's a question that we can answer. And then there's the po political, which is, OK, and then but how do we weigh that against like sending our vaccines overseas to people who haven't even gotten one dose yet? Mm -hmm. And I think he's right to separate those out because if it's, by the way, if it's, if, if the first question is we don't even need to do it, that's really important to know because then you could send them all right. Then the second question is if it is necessary for a subset, then, then you can do a proper risk benefit calculation and make your policies accordingly and say, okay, wait a second. Like these, you know, 
these people need it, these people need it less. Let's let's not forget about our friends overseas who haven't gotten one dose. Um, but we have to, we actually haven't done that. And I think that's really important to separate those out. Um, but but then the, the the last thing is that if they approve a booster, if the answer to question one is we do need a boost in order to keep you know your hospitalization and death rate low. Um, and so here's the doses are available at the, at the pharmacy. Should you, you know, that, go get it? I mean, go get it because it's not like it's not like by not getting it, that dose will go to someone more deserving than you somehow overseas. Right. This is the sort of this is the sort of thing like Craig Spencer was telling me about. It's like you know, you don't like skip your vegetables when you're a kid because there are kids all over the world who are malnourished. Like no, you eat the food in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's I want to separate those out. What do you do when people ask you, um, cause people ask me this sometimes, I don't know if you guys get this question where people will be like, Hey, what do you think about me just going into CVS or some pharmacy and telling them I'm due for my second shot, even though they've already had their, their two shots. Um, what are you telling these people? Okay. Don't do that. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons is that, um, the, these vaccines are really reactogenic. They, they cause side effects. A lot of them are annoying, but safe. I, I of course, wrote, uh, I, one of my favorite things I wrote last year was that I had a, a, a case of manaphylaxis after I got my dose of, of the <laughs> Pfizer. I was laid out, you know, for a couple of days, feeling real sorry for myself. And then, you know, okay, I got, I got antibodies. Um, you know, no one's really studied what a young middle-aged adult getting a third dose of this um, does in terms of side effects. And um, it could be that that third dose at a hundred percent dose does cause an uptick in something um, like myocarditis that that I don't want to have. And so it's, or it's possible that it doesn't at all. It's possible that a half dose will get me the antibodies I need, but not the side effects I can't afford to have. And so, and the younger you get, the harder that call is to make. So for example, I I think, imagine giving a a kid a third dose. It's like, oh, it's going to cause an uptick of myocarditis. And the question is, is it going to be the same vanilla sort of mostly mild troponin, but without any echocardiographic evidence that the the heart function has been changed? Uh, Or is it going to be like the real deal where kids like need cardiac support? Like if that were the case, it'd be terrible. We we wouldn't want to give them a third dose, right? So I would say that every, every medicine, every treatment, every preventative medicine has a risk and a benefit. And right now I'm not confident enough to, for me to walk into a pharmacy. By the way, I could have gotten one last week in California when I was visiting. <laughs> they never would have been the wiser because all my stuff was in Massachusetts. Right, right, right. No, that that's that's pretty much what I tell them less eloquently. I also add that when we do get boosters, I mean, who knows what is uh, not only just the, will the dosage possibly change, but maybe it'll include some sort of protection from variants too, which is what you want. And then you don't want to then have to take an extra booster on top of that extra shot you took and who knows what the hell will happen at that point. Totally. Um, can you tell people, let's tell people again where they can find your bulletin, please. Okay. It's insidemedicine.bulletin.com. It's free to subscribe. And uh, you, the default is that they want you to subscribe with your Facebook profile, but you can actually use any email you want to subscribe if you click the fine print and it's all free. Uh, you know, eventually there's going to be some paywall stuff for some premium content. Um, you know, like one-on-ones with Kaveh and I doing Greco-Roman wrestling will be behind the paywall. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but but uh, but it always will be the main stuff will always be free. Um, and the idea is to really go beyond health headlines and to, so that not only do you know what we know, but you kind of know why we know it. And um, I try to get I try to spoil it in the first paragraph or two. And then if you stay with me, I go through like kind of why. It's really well done, man. Honestly, I, I think you're one of the best at communicating very complicated scientific medical topics in a way that works for both medical professionals like ourselves and people without the same medical background. Really, it's it's pretty impressive how you're right for both, uh, and that's hard to do. That's hard to do. I know people say you gotta you gotta um, meet people where they're at, but somehow you're able to. Um, put it out there very plainly and it works for everyone. So um, I do highly recommend it and not just for the Greco-Roman wrestling that is bound to come. Um, so uh, also, uh, can you tell people where to find you on Twitter? Yep, at Jeremy Faust. And I still have my podcast with Lauren Westerfer at Bone Podcast. Um, I'm on Instagram at Jeremy Samuel Faust. It, oh, um, what, one more thing. Uh, you, I'm really glad you brought up that point about how you don't technically have to sign up through Facebook because I know a lot of people don't want to do Facebook for a number of reasons, but uh, it is worth going through your personal email and filling out whatever little, uh, clicking whatever tiny little boxes at the bottom you have to to do that. Um, Wade, do you have anything to plug? No, I, I would I would also second that the bulletin is excellent. I've read all the articles and it's it's great. I'm gonna I'm gonna make everyone that I know read it. Dr. Faust, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to see you guys. become real. When I think about where we are now, I almost forget what life was like before. Before mass spaces were commonplace and social distancing pulled us six feet away from each other. Before we became well adjusted to awkward elbow taps and daily Zoom chats. But when did coronavirus actually become a real thing? When did it go from being some external far off threat to right outside my front door to inside the hospital? to on the other side of the anteroom? When did it go from being one of the many distant threats to being the only meaningful threat I encounter on a daily basis? I can still remember hearing about the Wuhan virus in January. It was foreign then, affecting foreign people in a foreign country. Even when one of my team members' parents was barred entry into the United States simply for being from Wuhan, it wasn't real for me because those were her parents, not mine. And it was in her hometown, not mine. In the following weeks, new words entered my daily vernacular. Words like Don and Doff, social distancing, COVID-19 and PUI. 
Sessions on PPE replaced once educational conferences. Long talks about the threat of coronavirus would commonly interrupt rounds. Then the first cases affecting Americans hit both at sea by the Princess Cruise Line and on land in Seattle. Soon a nursing home was overrun by its own outbreak. But this was in Seattle. I was still safe, right? We were still safe, right? I mean, what state in the U.S. could be further from Georgia than Washington? But then a case was reported in New York, and the cases started piling up, even in patients who had never traveled. The Dow Jones plummeted, bottled water evaporated, toilet paper and hand sanitizer turned to gold and saffron. That was the fear setting in. The fear is complicated. Our greatest fears don't always lie in the known, but the unknown. What is this virus? Who gets it? How is it spreading? Who should be worried? Is there a cure? How long do I have to live? Maybe that last question was a bit dramatic. Or was it? Miss T was a 45-year-old female with a history of HIV, hypertension, and a remote kidney transplant in 2016. I had seen her in clinic, and at the behest of her primary care doctor, we were admitting her to the hospital to rule out COVID-19. She had had a bad weekend, but she wasn't dying, right? She had developed diarrhea on Friday, vomiting on Saturday, and maybe spiked temp on Sunday. But still, her primary care doc says, we should just rule her out. So, she was examined, transported, admitted, swabbed, and monitored. And all the while, I donned and doffed and doffed and donned. I was careful. But in the back of my head, I kept my own little secret. I just knew she was negative. The lady barely had a cough and hadn't even spiked the temperature since she was admitted. But one night, around 7.30, I get a call from my attending while at home. He's never called me after five. Hey, I just thought you should know. Our lady in 51, she's positive. She's positive for COVID-19. When did coronavirus become real? From then on, entering my apartment became a process. White coat stays in the hospital, pager stays in the car, shoes off at the door, alcohol swipes on the phone, scrubs in the washer on site. But what about this badge? We're gonna need more wipes. And then there was Miss T, whose room I had donned and doffed before entering numerous times. But today I might as well don my black robe and scythe because she read my face. I have it, don't I? I have it, right? Yes. Yes, you do. Then the questions erupted out of her and kept coming and coming. How did I get it? How did this happen? What about my mother? I've only been to the grocery store in my house for the last week. How does it spread? What about my daughter? Is there a cure? How long do I have to live? Looking into her face and realizing that I had been running the very same questions in my own head for the last 12 hours, I remember exactly when coronavirus became real for the both of us. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. 
The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.